future of work. That works. Four people. A smorgasbord of snackable stories to help you be a more effective leader. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Thank you so much for dedicating the next half hour of your one precious life to listen to this episode and I can promise you, you will not regret it. My guest this week is Mark Earls, who is a strategist and a writer and a performer. And when I first met him, he was the global strategy chief at Ogilvy and Mather. So the reason I've invited him to be a guest on Humans Leading Humans is that he was the person who first piqued my interest in behavioral science. And I think it's interesting to explain the context. So back in the day, I used to run a big event. Well, it was a lovely event. It was the right size event and it was called Between. And it was wonderfully weird and experimental and experiential. People used to call it things like the digital ashram. And it was all about um, collaboration and fun and playfulness. Uh, And it was very much based upon the create framework. So I need to explain actually why it's important to this story. So the concept was really simple. So my thinking was this. This was in 2003, we started doing between. People from big organizations needed to understand what digital would mean to them in the future, how disruptive convergence digital would be. And then on the other side, there was this enormous growing ecosystem of kind of digital agencies and startups that were just making incredible things happen really quickly. So I figured out that the big companies really needed innovation and innovators really needed the money of the big companies. So I thought, well, why don't we hold a big event? And so we did once a year, leaders from marketing and technology and telco and TV would come together with leaders from startups and digital agencies. Great idea. But what we found was what would happen was technology would stay with technology and people from telco would stick with telco. And so we started having to get creative with formats to get people to break out of their comfort zones and stray beyond the walls of their tribes. So what we started doing was something really interesting. And the reason I'm telling you this is because it's really important to the way that Beep has grown. So at the beginning of the event, we used to say to people, this is your challenge. At some point today, you're going to spend an hour and a half with a bunch of people who you would never normally meet. And your job together is to find a solution to the problem that we're setting. And then tomorrow, after you've had more time to learn and absorb all of the innovation that's going on across the world, you're going to get back together again. And then one of your team is going to stand up on the stage and tell the rest of the conference what your solution was. And there could only be one winner. And what was really interesting about that was it turned out that the people who were in those teams, even though they were from really different worlds, would start 
to collaborate with each other afterwards. They'd find ways of working. So it was really interesting that actually by pulling people together around a shared challenge, they created their own new tribe. And of course, that's the absolute basis of what BEEP is about. We surface shared challenges and we give people the tools and the space and the platform so that they can come together to find solutions to those challenges. So I wanted to tell you that story because I don't often talk about between but it was a really important part in the journey to where we are now. So anyway, Mark opened one of these big events. And I remember he was talking about behavioral science and it was the first time that I'd really ever heard about what was going on in this particular part of science. And I remember at some point, I don't know still how, he had hundreds of people join him on stage and suddenly they were jumping up and down on the stage together and I, I will never forget that moment. Anyway, so I will introduce you to Mark in a second but before I do that I just want to say a huge thank you for all of you people who have sent feedback and suggestions for what you'd like to see more of and how this show is impacting your life. Your feedback is so important to me. Um, my favorite bit of feedback this week was from somebody, interestingly, who also works at a very senior level inside a big public sector organization, who basically said that your show gives me the tricks and the ways by which I can start to humanize the way we do things. So thank you, you know who you are. Thank you. So. Here we go. Let's introduce you to Mark. Markles, thank you so, so much for being a guest on Humans, Leading Humans. So Mark, in time-honored format, tell the audience. So what have you done to get here? Not who you are, because who you are is this incredibly creative, lovely man, but what have you done? Oh, hello. What have I done? I have worked half first half of my career. I worked in creative agencies and the like doing strategy. And I was really responsible for the people stuff and I became obsessed with behavioral science. So I've been fighting that battle or championing that cause for some, you know, more than two decades now. I've written best selling books, best selling, at least in Estonia. I've written award winning <laughs> papers. I've created events that have won prizes. I've done all kinds of things like that, but I mostly advise businesses and organizations of different sorts. So I've worked with everyone from the, the likes of IBM, Unilever, Experian. Uh, I've worked with Greenpeace and advise Friends of the Earth. So I write books, create experiences, and I advise all kinds of organizations about how people really are bringing practical applications of behavioral science into their worlds. And you've had some pretty senior positions inside some fairly large and complex organizations. Yeah, no, the last one I did was the, my late mother called my last proper job. I was um, global strategy chief at uh, Ogilvy Worldwide, which at the time was the largest advertising and creative network in the world. So, you know, I did proper jobs there as a corporate leader, as well as working small creative businesses. I was chair of the trustees of St. Luke's, which was uh, the only employee-owned business um, in the creative space in uh, the UK uh, for quite a long time and, and revolutionised many of the practices that we now see um, as sort of Google-like in you know, office design and working 
processes and agility and all that kind of stuff. It's just occurred to me that some of the people who are listening to this probably work with agencies, but they probably don't really understand how agencies work. So I wonder whether you might be able to do a one minute flash, really trying to get people to understand because I've, I find myself in situations with corporates, with, with partners, um, and you can see they have no clue how agencies work. So could you do a quick breeze through? Well, <laughs> very good question. I'm mindful that I'm an honorary member of the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising here, so which is the advertising <laughs> agency trade body in the UK. But let me try. I mean, essentially, that the advertising agency and the creative agency, design or advertising or direct marketing or anything else, they try really hard to solve the problems that clients, corporates have by making communications and other things which shape the behavior of people. Now, that's sort of an, the outcome of what they do. How they do it varies by business and varies by sector, but they are all of the belief that creativity is the best tool to solve problems. Perhaps too many of them are really excited about communications um, and beautiful films to solve all the problems they think they can solve, but that's their belief. And I found them generally, the people that work in them to be a really interesting and eclectic bunch over the years. But I also think that, you know, as our friend Nicole says, there is a certain obsession with sticking to the status quo, but it's not a 30 second ad. Oh, you no, should absolutely. So why? So I think there is, interestingly, considering that we're talking about the create framework, I think many and I'm not saying all, creative agencies don't necessarily have operating models within which peoples can be at their oh, best creative. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. I think that one of the biggest challenges is that they have commoditized themselves so that there's one way of working, which is common across, if you like, basic process that, that can be bought by corporations. And they buy the thing that is produced, not the impact that that thing will create. And it's a tiny business, really. You know, even the biggest businesses only have a couple of thousand people around the world. And so as a result, it's a bit handmade. And it's quite easy for these businesses to either become distracted, distant from their customers and what matters to their customers, which is the outcome, really, or to fall in with the way that their customers feel most comfortable buying things. There's also a very uh, hierarchical thing in most of these businesses and that uh, very few people make most of the money and most people make none of it and actually work. Yeah, it still surprises me that actually in the 21st century, we're still having many agencies still operating in this incredibly bureaucratic, hierarchical, not particularly respectful way. I'm not saying all of them. There's some great agencies, no, no. but many of them. So Many of them. And I think one of the things that they've had to deal with in recent years is the realisation that white male executives isn't the answer. They have had a real significant uh, impact on the gender balance in the businesses and particularly in the leaderships in, in the businesses. It's still very male in lots of ways. But the other thing is they've made a, an effort, but they haven't solved the problem on diversity in other dimensions like ethnicity and so on. Yeah. But that's only a start. So they're, they're a bit behind the game on that, to be honest. But it's hard. It's a hard business. It's a low margin business. And it normally requires lots of young people to work ridiculously long hours to the detriment of their health and well-being. 
Exactly. And it's funny, you know, when I meet some people who've been working in big companies who then get offered a job in an agency, they're like, oh, it's going to be so amazing. It's so creative and so fun. And I'm like, yeah, good luck with that then. That was the uh, inspiration behind the work we did at St. Luke's was to reinvent things and say, you know, why should the corner office exist? There's no need for a senior executive to have a corner office. Why can't they just sit with everyone else? We turned the meeting rooms into, we had a really neat idea. We turned the meeting rooms into brand rooms. So the clients that were on a retainer, we created a room for them to come and sit in when they wanted to. So we charged them rent, um, which was, I thought, a very inventive solution to the low margin business thing. And we also were continually encouraging young people to take responsibility for things at a time when perhaps a more conservative business would have kept those people in in subservient position. We championed young talent from a diverse base and a talent of all sorts. And we just encouraged people to get on with it, support them as much as we could. I mean, St. Luke's was, it fitted under the Create Framework completely, didn't it? Oh, totally. Totally. That's why I find the Create Framework so familiar and easy to work with him because it, it is what I have experienced in, in my working life. Um, that's the optimal environment for creating solutions that really work and for delivering those. Common sense. So I love talking to you for this long. <laughs> story number one, Mark Hurls. Okay, story number one was actually during my time at St. Luke's and I'd not been in the business that long, but I was one of the senior people there and I had you know responsibilities for teams of people and stuff. One of my senior partners was clearly very unhappy, and this was causing disruption in the business, and my people were suffering, and the work was suffering, and the clients were suffering. And he was really unhappy, and it, was, it wasn't caused by, but it wasn't helped by his addiction issues. Let's call him Fred. And he was a lovely man and had been a friend before, and we talked behind closed doors, if you like, about how can we help him? What can we do? And there was lots of moaning about him, and, and everyone avoided it. Not just the uh, middleweight people, but the senior partners avoided this conversation because it was too hard. And it turns out, when I checked with the HR people, that um, he hadn't had any feedback. Fred hadn't any feedback for three years. So he didn't know what they were all thinking about his work and his behavior. And he had no idea. And he just felt more and more isolated and more and more depressed. And nobody wanted to deal with it. And I realized somebody had to deal with it. So I put my hand up, which is one of the things I keep doing stupidly in my life. I put my hand up for things which which are challenges because I just think it's only fair. I think that's one of the things a leader needs to have is a moral compass that says this is not right. That's one of my lessons from this is that it's okay for me to keep putting myself in these positions because if I think it's right, then, then I should stand up for it. So I brokered a series of sessions, listening sessions with practical outcomes for everybody so that Fred could deal with the challenges, the mental health and and the physical challenges he faced. And we could create space for him to be brilliant at what he did and feel okay. And we could also stop the people around him feeling uncomfortable and scared. And it was a win-win for everybody. Now, I didn't want to do it, but, you know, as you'll hear from my other stories, I tend to do put my hand up. Um, no one else wanted to deal with this. No one else felt comfortable. I felt scared because it was intimidating. Um, and I realized that if it went wrong, then I'd you know, lose support all round. So, you know, there was high risk for me. But, you know, bugger it. I went in and, and did it. And the amazing thing of the outcome is that I felt so relieved. I felt that everyone else felt relieved. And 
we all felt a lot more confident having dealt with this thing that nobody wanted to deal with, which was as plain as the nose on your face. It was an issue. We had to help. We had to solve this. Not just the duty of care that employers have, but because it was one of us. It was our friend. We need to help. We need to make it better for us. Now, you might want to ask why people, even the most experienced, the most empathetic leaders, don't deal with these kinds of issues. Because we all know there are issues like this that we come across, and not just HR issues, things we know are genuinely wrong. And there's quite a lot of good behavioral science, you know, supporting why we don't deal with these kind of things. There's, at a very basic level, our minds don't work by taking in information like a sponge and then computing it and then acting accordingly. It doesn't work like that. We tend to use shorthands, which means that we see the world as we expect to see it. And we don't see what we don't expect to see. And that's at a very basic level. We don't see the stuff we don't want to see. How many times have you just ignored that printer in the office that makes that humming noise that really is annoying? Because you just got used to it and it's not there anymore. How often have you realized that there's this thing in the way that our process delivers pain to our customers that we just, it's just silly and we know it's silly, but no one picks it up and goes, let's do it because it's just how it is around here. And I think that default setting of only seeing what we expect to see is, is responsible for a lot of the stuff that doesn't get addressed. And I think also there's very often these things are tied together with a sort of status quo bias. You know, how it, it's a bit like that uh, thing from Voltaire's Condide, you know, it's the best of all possible worlds. You know, this is as good as it gets. So if we sort of shake it up in any way, it might get worse. And um, I think there's there's that. And I, I think also there's there's a feeling that we all have, which is, what if it's just me? When you're forced to think about it, and, you know, we humans really don't like to think about things. You know, we've got three kilograms of grey mass between our ears, which can account for about 50% of our energy consumption when we're forced to really think hard. We don't like to think. We're, you know, Daniel Kahneman puts it this way, humans are to thinking as cats are to swimming. We can do it if we really have to. So let's not do that. So I think those things together explain a lot of these reasons why you don't, as a leader, don't see the things. They become invisible to you and you don't get to grips with them because, you, you know, frankly, it's too hard. Or you don't want to raise your head above the parapet. And, and actually, it doesn't matter what level of leader you are, whether you're at the beginning of the leadership journey or at the top of the leadership journey, you don't want to be seen as the odd one out. And uh, I think I that's absolutely you remember, right. Do you remember a performance troupe called the Yes Men? Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> no. Yep. So, uh, dear listeners, if you haven't, go and check out the Yes Men because they used to do performance arts where they used to go into a corporate environment and see how far they could push them before somebody would stand up and go, this is not right. And it is frankly terrifying. So, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there, there's lots of behavioral science experiments about bystander effects, how we just don't see stuff and we don't want to see it because it's difficult to deal with. And um, it takes quite a lot for people to get engaged. That's why that you know biblical parable of the um, the Good Samaritan is so interesting. Is not because it reveals some essential ethical superiority of the Samaritans, or some weakness on the other side, but it just says you know we most people just walk by because they it's just hard to engage with stuff. It's hard. Yeah, and it's you know I mean going back to the courage on the create framework. 
Yeah. It's up to the leader. Somebody has to be the person to do because everybody's seeing it and somebody's waiting for somebody else to do something. And as a leader, it's your responsibility to find that strength. And if do, not you, then who? If you, yeah, if not you, then who? Brilliant first story. Thank you. Mark, what's your story number two? My, my story number two is later on in my career, again, in a creative agency, it was, um, I got this European and, and, and global job, supposedly quality controlling the strategic and consumer thinking in the, in the business. Um, and as a result, I was part of the European Creative Council, which was a very nice thing to do. Went for a jolly to Barcelona and um, you know stayed in the Arts Hotel for a couple of nights. Had really lovely dinner, one of the best dinners I've ever had um, in, a, in a restaurant in Barcelona. It was fantastic. And, and then we sat down and, and watched the... Um, the last year's creative output from the business. Uh, it's what they call in, in that world, the real, they watched the real from last year. And um, everyone was sort of nodding and patting themselves on the back going, well, that, that's actually quite good, you know, it's actually not bad. And uh, in some ways it's better than last year, I think, which is great. Well done everyone, an extra glass of wine all round. And I just, I don't know why it is, but well, I do know why it is, I was a bit nervous. And I did have that glass of wine that you're not supposed to have if you're feeling nervous in a, in a work environment. And I just instinctively had to burst the bubble and, and say, look, I'm really sorry, everyone, but I don't think it's very good at all. And I offered them a practical mechanism for improving things from a previous company. I said, but that's not necessarily the answer for us. But we do need to admit that the emperor has no clothes. That isn't very good at all. And I was terrified that I'd said this. It's almost, you know, sometimes your brain works slower than your mouth and I'd only caught up with the fact that I said it about two or three minutes later and I realized I was still feeling a lot of fear and discomfort and isolation from the group because I was the one in the group like the little boy in the emperor has no clothes story that I was going to be the outcast now my first big meeting with this bunch of people and I'd just blown it but it turns out that actually uh, you know whilst I did make a couple of enemies as a result of that outburst uh, I made some really good allies, and particularly the creative leads and, and some of the country leads, because it gave them courage to say the same thing. I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you said that. And how many times, I'm with you, Mark, you know, how many times have you been in a meeting and you can, you're looking around the room waiting for somebody to say something, because it's clearly yeah. not right. And you it's go, clearly not right. Actually, can Absolutely. I just ask you, there's this concept of the jester, which mm. I think is really important within the context of leadership. I think that's right. I think the jester is a really interesting role from uh, medie medieval European culture. And it's, uh, you know, you see it in Shakespeare's plays and it's often also included things like uh, carnival in cultures. Carnival is a time when you turn the world upside down and the people in power get to see the truth. And the jester embodies this. The jester is the one person who's allowed to speak to the king and say, not so good, my friend, not so good one person who won't get their head chopped off. And it's a role, I think, that we all need to play at different times. And I found it really useful to have somebody in every team that I've run that is able to say at some point or other, I'm just going to call time now. I think this is this is this is a thing here that we're not we're not focusing on, we're not agreeing, we're walking past, we're we're pretending to ourselves. So we all need to do it different times, but also it's useful to have somebody who's really good at that in your team and to license them to, to do so. 
And, and you know, Harley from Burning Man was talking about the fact that in Burning Man, what they do is they give a different person a role in each team mm -hmm. meeting. So it's a really useful thing to actually give somebody the job of being the naysayer. Be the critical thinker in the group. Today, Absolutely. you can say exactly what you think, and you're given license to do that, and we're all going to appreciate you for that. I think that's a really good thing, the notion of roles. Too much of our working life is spent in meetings, whether it's in real life or on Zoom or Teams or whatever. And everyone turns up. Even if there's an agenda, what's the role that you're to play in this meeting? We need to be really clear about that. We need to be really clear about the expectations we have of the other people in the meeting. One of the things that, that struck me during the lockdown is the, when we moved from all in real life meetings to lots of video meetings was the need to think harder about how that meeting structured and how you ask people to behave. In Completely. That Completely. You know, they, and there are so many formats that you can do. I mean, obviously, we work on those formats. Just because you're using a video conferencing machine technology does not mean that you can just turn on the video technology and carry on as normal. Because do you know what? Normal was not great before. I and think that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. I mean, one of the big um, behavioral science ideas that actually got made famous by the Challenger disaster 35 years ago is the notion of groupthink, where conformity, our natural tendency to conform with other people's views will stop us accepting that there's something serious we have to deal with. If you remember, the Challenger disaster blew up at launch, and as it turned out, seven of the previous 11 shuttle flights had had the same critical fault observed by the engineers, and there'd been calls the day before the launch of Challenger, the space shuttle, between the, the engineers and management uh, at which it was, it was specified, it's going to go tomorrow if you try and launch. You know, that group thing is a really powerful thing. And it's really hard if you're in a leadership team because you do need people to work as a team. You do need them to be together, but you have to find ways. And the gesture is a brilliant way to disrupt this group thing. One of the things that I've noticed, and I don't know if you've noticed this as well, Katz, is how strongly people respond when a group's view gets challenged. You know, when uh, someone, I mean, I once got chucked out of a boardroom for showing a leadership team that, you know, it wasn't their marketing that had built their strong retail business, but in fact, their property department done 90% of the growth. Do um, not tell us uh, the truth. <laughs> do not tell us the truth. We're much happier with our illusions. Now, you know, in behavioral science terms, in cog science terms, all of us live with illusions. And if we didn't have illusions, then we'd top ourselves. It's a, it's a well-known truth that uh, in psychotherapy that the clinically depressed tend to have a much more realistic view of the pointlessness of human existence and any of their efforts to change the world than the rest of us do. In senior positions, you're much more likely to be subject to what's called an optimism bias. That is, you believe that your plans and your actions, and your decision-making you believe they're going to be more successful than any sane objective observer would give them credit for, and certainly more than your, your team would think. So optimism is really important because we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning, but it is a danger as well. Um, and we need, to, we need to find ways to puncture these things without hurting anyone. Because the last thing you want to do is make people feel my world's collapsed. But Sheldon uh, Solomon is a brilliant social psychologist at Skidmore College in the US. He's championed this school of psychology called terror management. His underlying theory is that the reason why we have these things like groupthink and, 
and worldviews and cultural practices and rituals and even the sense of self-esteem and our importance in the world is that it wards off the reality of our own individual and collective mortality. Now, you don't have to believe that, but it does explain some of the vehemence that you get when you scratch at a worldview. You know this, Kat, working with corporations, that there's certain 100%. things you go... It's like when a massage therapist finds that spot and you and goes, whoa, that was quite strong. It's that. And the reason why people individually and groups collectively respond so strongly is, I think, well explained by Solomon, this, this, this brilliant notion that it is a deep thing. I am feeling threatened. We are feeling threatened. Everything we fought for. Do you sound, feel this sounds like like the language of uh, current politic, political discourse. 100%. Everything we value, our civilization. But, and you can see how that anger suddenly rages out. And it's, I think this is what we see in business a lot as well. So you have to be really smart about how you make sure that this groupthink is not dominating your team. And Absolutely. the gesture is a brilliant way through. There are other ways as well, like you know, having a, a member of, of your team representing the customer at all times. Exactly. You know, and, um, you know, no, at the end of the day, making sure that you have a create culture, because in a create culture, people are much, much, much less likely to fall into that state of terror. They're actually absolutely. much more likely to be able to feel that they can say this is not right. And that's what we should all be looking for. Cultures absolutely. in which people can sit up, talk about the things that they can see are not right and be incentivized for it. Because yeah, absolutely. And I've described in both of my stories that the effect on me afterwards and the effect of people around me is relief. Yes. Now, that tells me something about what was going on before and how we all felt about this, you know, this problem that we're walking past and we too, too difficult to deal with. It's a relief. It's actually a relief to accept that it's a thing. And there's also something about the way in which you address the thing which is challenging. Mm -hmm. There is a way whereby you can almost make yourself into a joker to just broach it. And I quite often use the, I may be being stupid here, but can I just ask this question? Because I don't mind. I'm losing nothing. Yeah. Yeah. But it just opens yeah. that door. So Absolutely. I mean, there, you know, I've, uh, this is one of the things human beings are, are not just um, biological or psychological creatures. They're also cultural creatures. And this is why as leaders, you have to encourage cultural rituals and practices which help diffuse this kind of thing. And each business needs to create its own. Um, you can steal from other places if you want, but you need, you need to feel uh, as a part of that, this is the way we do it. We recognize this might be a danger, so we're going to play this together. We're going to, you're going to play this role, or we're going to have a customer representative, or we're going to start with the opposite and, and make sure we're clear about what the benefits of this is to all our stakeholders. Whatever you choose to do, it doesn't really matter, but it's about taking the opportunity to get your culture to create its own artifact, its own rituals exactly. and practices that diffuse the stuff. That's the leader's only job, to architect. Well, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of my best bosses ever is Adam Morgan, is an amazing thinker about brands. And he invented the Challenger brand notion um, and still runs the Challenger project. He's a wonderful man. And he once said to me when I worked for him, he said, um, the thing is, we're all going to be out of this job we're doing now, either in a box with a P45 that's uh, being fired or of our own volition. So don't cling on to it. Don't cling on to it. And don't assume that how things are now is how they always have to be. On to story number three. 
on to story number three. So I mentioned before, and I've, I've talked about behavioural science a bit, I am an absolute passionate advocate for the adoption of behavioural science and the application to all kinds of bits of our, our life in business and in society. And I have been sort of a part of an informal ginger group for about 25 years now, trying to bring this into, into business in the UK and the US. And the channel I focused on in particular was the insights and research community in that on the basis of the insights and research community, the people who measure this humans and, and help us understand humans, if they don't have the frameworks and the models that um, behavioral science is giving us about how people really are, then we're not going to get much further. It's like having a, you know, like having the wrong lenses in your glasses. Um, it's not going to help you see what's there. Um, and so I've written, I've written lots of papers, I've written books, and I've been given prizes, and I've got speeches, and I've created events around this stuff. And I've got, as you say in your introduction, I've got lots of people jumping up and down repeatedly. I had 1,200 American market researchers jumping up and down to demonstrate how, how people copy each other people and how things spread through a population. So I, you know, I, I do that kind of stuff. And I realized that I needed something that was more, less rational than writing a paper, doing an article, writing a book, something that was going to get this, when this community was together, to get them to accept together that there was a problem and to embody it. I felt it needed a dramatic, literally a dramatic intervention in this when the community was gathering together. And so here's my dramatic intervention. I got on stage, I'd be given a slot to speak, which was very good given that you know I kept criticizing the practices of the, of the industry. I got on stage and I stood there and I looked at my feet, I looked at my watch, I looked at the audience, I looked around the audience, I looked around the audience again, looked back at my watch, and I waited for those nervous giggles and the shifting in seats that, you know, you, you get when an audience is made to wait. And I waited and looked at my watch again, looked around the room. It's five minutes. And I eventually just said, listen, how long, how long are we going to have to wait until you guys pick up and turn these insights that we got from Urban Science into a version of your practice? Because until you do that, nothing is going to change in big business. That's it. Five minutes and then a breath of question to them. And then I walked off. Holy now, shit. I know. Well, you know, like I say, it's slightly me being prompted. I'm not every leader is going to be prepared to that. I felt I embodied the urgency of change with that five minutes of silence, making them sit there feeling uncomfortable. Making them feel uncomfortable was in getting them to embody the need for change. Now, that was my version with that particular campaign, with that particular audience. Now, whatever you do, whatever you feel comfortable with, how can you get, as a leader, get people to embody, physically embody, not rationally understand, but physically embody uh, and intuitively embrace the need for change? It reminds me of you know, one of my sim simplistic versions of behavioral science um, is the difference between Spock and Kirk. And when we're talking to people in business, we tend to assume that people in business are quite Spockish. That is rational, considered, evidence-based, and so on, logical, uh, logical, logical, logical. Uh, whereas human beings are much, actually much more like Kirk, whether they're in a, a suit uh, or a smart business dress, or whether they are in a grocery store or queuing up at a, a fuel station, whatever. They are much more like Kirk. They're intuitive, impulsive, emotional. 
we need to engage with that bit when we communicate. And it doesn't necessarily mean what you say. That the bit, the question that I ask people when I was standing on that stage is much less important than the feeling they had. The feeling they had is the bit that you, you need to get. And you know, my challenge to all leaders now is to is to go, so how are you going to make people feel that stuff that you need to get them to feel, to engage with at a deep, profound level? Because unless you get that, you're just going to get lip service and uh, sort of very rational interpretations. And, and we know how hard it is to change organisations, culture and, and practices. How many times have we heard from leaders, but I've told them, I told them the God, thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Therefore, why have they not heard it? Well, you've obviously told them in the wrong way. And and again, you know, I think there's something there about the power of silence. Um, and, and we use it in BEEP a lot, getting people yep. to understand when it's a good time to leave silence and when it's not. Silence can be all kinds of things. And it's just it's in, it, because we spend most of our time talking, as I've been doing, back to you now, um, the, the silence that we can create is incredibly powerful, whether it's to make people feel the thing that I was describing or whether it's to give people a chance to gather their thoughts. It's very, very useful to give a minute silence before people start talking to each other about a particular issue. It's particularly important when we have people who are less um, outgoing and people are more introvert. They need to feel in control of their thoughts before they start engaging with other people. So you just need to help people with, with that. And silence is a great, great, for that. 100%. Mark, I thought I knew that we would have the very best conversation and it has exceeded my expectations. As always, Mark, you're a pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, so before we close down, because we've got a little bit over our time, I apologise about that. It was just too interesting. What would you like your episode of Humans Needing Humans to be called? I haven't thought about that at all. Do you have any ideas? <laughs> I'm, uh, that's, okay, so we could call it Face the Elephant? Face the Elephant, we, yeah, Face the Elephant. Or we could call it... How um, long? How long? Yeah, because that's the, that's the weight example. That's the weight story. Ah. Mm. Or we could call it Emperor's New Clothes? Emperor's new clothes. Oh, the emperor is naked. <laughs> the emperor is naked. What emperor? Um, we could, I mean, we could, we could even, yeah, we could call it Spock and Kirk, or we, which comes up late. Thinking back on what the stories, how they turned out, what would you, what is the theme that comes out of this for you? I think the theme for me was about sitting forward and calling it when yep. nobody else is. So it fe I feel like it should be something about that. That's good. Or, or, or disturbing the status quo or something in that in that place. Yeah. About bursting bubbles. Burst the bubble. There you go. Mr. Marcos, how about bursting bubbles? Bursting bubbles. <laughs> it will be called that. Thank you so much for your time and energy and expertise and just brilliance. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. That was fun. So what bubbled up for me? What bubbled up for me, I think, was 
Just because it's hard doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. You should do whatever you feel is right, even though it's tough. Because honest feedback is powerful. And as Isabel Naidu said in her episode, feedback is a gift, even though it doesn't always feel like it. And as Amy Edmonds had said in her episode, psychological safety does not mean comfortable. And the truth is just because you can't really see it, because you know we only see the things we want to see, doesn't mean it's not there. And not facing up to the truth is a massive risk because you see little problems, they start small and they grow like cancer. And that's why BEEP is all about surfacing shared challenges as they happen and empowering people to find collaborative solutions that stand some chance of working. So be the jester, speak the truth. Don't be waiting for somebody else to do. If not you, then who? Or make sure that someone in your team is empowered to be the truth sayer at all times. It doesn't matter how uncomfortable it is. You have been listening to humans leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Marketing Society. And if you're not a member already, I'd suggest you pop over to their website and join up. It's worth it. A massive, massive thanks to the fantastic Super Terrania for the magical sting of stings. Go to We Are Beep to find out more about the Create framework and how we support companies by unlocking the problem-solving potential of humans. If you loved this week's episode, pass it on to your friends. Pass it on to your colleagues you think might need a shot of inspiration and courage. Better still, if you've got a boss who doesn't understand how to create environments in which humans thrive, please pass this on to them. Thank you so much for joining me. Please subscribe. The links are in the notes. Be inspired. Be imaginal. Be more human. And I look forward to seeing you next time.